Hello and welcome to Better Construction with Sean McStay, the podcast where we discuss design and construction techniques, products, and details that lead to a better built environment. All right, and welcome to this week's episode of Better Construction. I am thrilled today to have with me Chris Hill. Chris is uh, president of B Collective Homes, a high-performance-focused builder in the uh, greater Vancouver area. Uh, he's also a member of the board of Pacifist Canada, so I'm uh, interested to hear his thoughts on uh, better construction, high-performance industry in our neck of the woods, and also chat a little bit about what you as builders and homeowners can look for uh, when building these higher-performance homes. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. So uh, for people who don't know you already, uh, maybe introduce yourself a little bit, talk about uh, where you started out and how you kind of ended up uh, very firmly in the uh, high performance side of the construction industry. All right. So as Sean said, my name is Chris Hill. I am the, uh, the president of B Collective. Uh, B Collective is a relatively new company. We merged uh, three existing builders together to, uh, to take on more scale and have more impact in the world. I am a uh, I'm a certified professional accountant, so a CPA CMA. I'm a master residential builder. I'm a Passive House certified tradesperson, and as as you mentioned, I'm a the treasurer of Passive House Canada. So I sit on the board as well there. So if we start at the beginning, I was actually I used to be I was a lumber trader. I used to trade lumber internationally, and that's kind of where I spent a lot of my early years. Um, and and found I I did, wasn't enjoying that that aspect of the industry. Uh, I was selling a lot of material to the large home manufacturers in the US, uh, a lot of the production builders um, down there. And then we started to do more and more work with China and, and international trade. And I just didn't, I wasn't enjoying it. And I didn't find my passion there. So I made a switch. I switched, I started to do my CMA practice. And then halfway through that, realized I'm not the kind of person that's gonna sit in front of a laptop uh, or in front of a computer doing people's taxes. Uh, so I'm definitely not that kind of accountant. Um, my brother at the time was a builder and, and pushing forward. And we had, I found all of our debates or the, the dining room table or my interest was always towards green building uh, and, and what we could do to make an impact there. Um, and that's where I started. I started a company called Richie Construction. Um, and that company was in existence for about five to six years, and we just recently merged it into uh, into B Collective. Interesting. So, I mean, that's a really kind of unique backstory. I find a lot of the people that I interview, uh, you know, their dad was a builder, or, you know, something like that. But you kind of came into it from a, a different perspective, having that kind of financial background and acumen that maybe uh, your average builder probably doesn't have. Do you find that to be really helpful on a day-to-day basis? Or do you find that to maybe sometimes be a bit of a hindrance? Uh, how does that, how does that go? I think it depends. It depends what time of the month it is. Yeah. In regards to which financials I'm reviewing, I think I think if I really put my accountant brain on, I really uh, construction kind of stresses me out. There's a lot of risk that we're all taking in an individual project, and the rewards probably not quite adequate. In all honesty, uh, so when you really apply that lens to it, it it's probably adds a bit of stress. But I think coming at from a business side of view and the financials, we we run really tight budgets. We put a system in place. Um, that makes sense, uh, makes sense for our clients and makes sense for us. So I think all in all, it's a, it's a big positive for us um, that we are, we are a sound, sound financial company. 
but yeah, every once in a while you review the numbers, you're like, why are we doing this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine there's the occasional questionable decision that uh, <laughs> needs to happen just for the project, but maybe uh, yeah. it doesn't always line up. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. So you said that you you have quite a few qualifications. One of them, obviously, that'll stand out for people listening to this show is that you are a certified pacifist tradesperson. You said you've always been interested in green building. How did you get introduced to the pacifist side of things? So we about, oh gosh, I'm trying to think, about three or four years ago, maybe probably, probably four to five years ago, I sat down with Allison Holden Pope from One Seed Architecture and we were exploring some different projects and, and she's always been a big advocate of Passive House. And she sort of, I mean, her her firm is called One Seed and she planted a seed in my brain about Passive House. I still remember that going home and kind of doing the internet search and the, the first time that I really dug into it. And I spent like, I was up way too late uh, trying to just absorb everything I could possibly know about it. And I think for me, the clincher was the the municipal backing so the city of vancouver clearly in their in in their literature that they were sending out had a a mandate and a a general push towards passive house um there's been over the years and there's been a number of different green building options um, but nothing really stood out to me um and from there i think within two weeks i did the passive house designer course a month later i was a certified tradesperson uh, and then, and then we were getting involved on every single project we could, even if we were just supplying labor or knowledge to a project that was passive house, uh, we were, we wanted to be there and be a part of it. And so was there anything in particular that stood out for you about passive house and the standard that, uh, that really kind of made you interested in pursuing that as a company? I think the, the biggest one was that it was backed by a municipality, that there was tangible benefits from the local government. I mean, they fundamentally set our rules moving forward. Um, so I think that was as a business decision and me and me pushing after it. Um, that was a big one for me. I'll, I, I like that it's a performance standard. I like that you've got an attainable result. So when you're, and let's be honest, I've not taped a house in a while. When we're talking about reaching air tightness levels and doing these things, that's something that's really tangible for the guys to really hold on to on site. Uh, something that they can set a goal and then and then work towards getting that, and they get a result at the end of it. And I think that was a big that was something that really um, really worked for us. Um, it's something that's that's right there within those air tightness scores. Um, that and whether or not it's it's point one or point six, it's, it's it's just about getting below there. But it's just a it's a nice scorecard that's always there. But when you are, uh, you know, prospecting for new projects or people are coming to you through connections for, uh, you know, getting a new build or a renovation going, um, at what point in the conversation are you typically bringing up uh, the performance question? Because obviously in Vancouver, you know, if you can build just to code, it's three and a half air changes currently, I believe, in the city of Vancouver, at least. What, how, how do you have that conversation with your potential client about where they want to land on that spectrum? So I think we, we get clients a couple of different ways. So the, the clients that are coming to, we're getting more and more clients that are just coming to us directly. Um, they've recently purchased a lot or they inherited a lot or they've, they, they've kind of got their address, but they don't know what the next steps are. Um, those ones that are coming to us are already, they already know, they're already pre-qualified. They've been to our website or they're, they're coming to us um, because of our expertise within high, perf high performance. Um, 
the, the number one question that we can, well, I'm sure we're going to talk about is the cost of high performance. So that's usually why they come to us is I hear your high performance, but how much does it cost? What's the premium I'm going to pay to get this? Um, we also get a lot of clients um, through an integrated designer, des through designers and architects. Um, and the sales channels that we have developed have been really in that in that realm. I mentioned Allison at One Seed. Um, there's a there's there's a number of designers and architects that we work with that are really ingrained within that community. Um, so it's often brought up quite early. We we still do. I mean, for us, high performance um, is such a general term. Um, so we try to do all of our projects high performance. And and the reality at this point now is we can't not like even if it is a basic. In the city of Vancouver, I think they're at step code three. Um, we're just going to hit, we're going to tape it better and we're going to do it. We're going to hit some air tightness numbers that are going to bump it up a little bit regardless. Um, whether or not that's truly defined as high performance is arguable. Um, but I think early, it, to get to your question, it, it's brought up very early. It's almost the first meeting um, when we're listening to the clients and listening what their, what their objectives are. Um, and then applying that the the high performance lens to what's what's applicable for them. Okay, and you mentioned you mentioned uh, an integrated design approach. How important do you think that is when you're looking at these builds that are? Um, I, I hesitate to use the word complicated, um, but you definitely need to be more precise than perhaps uh, you know a code built house ten years ago. Yeah, I have no problem saying complicated. <laughs> 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 they're 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 tougher. I think I think they're the the reality of I think integrated design at this point, it's a it's a very it's kind of the, the, the word of the last few years, or multiple words, sentence, I guess, the slogan. Um for us when we're in an integrated design process, it's incredible how much better the project goes. Um you can do so much pre-planning. Um, so we were by no means are we designers. Uh, that's the last thing I want to do, but we can be involved in that meeting from the start. We can help with the constructability. We do knew if, at this point, we've built just about every passive house wall assembly there's, there is. Um, it's, it's, it's just, we can, we can problem solve so much stuff earlier and also give the confidence to the client architect and designer that we can execute that. Um, rather than them just simply dictating to us. I mean, we see a lot of projects that if they do the old design bid build way, they're either complicated details that they're overcomplicated details or they're, they're just, they're, they're falling back to the, this industry standard, um, like a super thick two by eight stud wall um, because that's what everybody can do. And we're sort of saying, well, if you involve us at the start, we can, we can, get you simpler details, we can work through those and, and make them a lot easier. So there's a little bit more upfront cost to it, but I guarantee it saves you like doing stuff over or site decisions are incredibly expensive. Yeah. Um, like it's just, that's where you get your cost overruns and labor and inefficiency and all those aspects. So the more planning we can do upfront, the better. Um, and we're seeing projects now where we're involved from day one with the architect um, and we're just sitting in on those meetings and applying a cost lens and a constructability lens right from the start. And those are the ones that have the most success. We can actually align on expectations and, and get them done for the clients. 
All right. And when you're in those meetings, um, especially at the beginning phases, is there are are there conversations about uh, trade offs? You know, building say higher higher performance, but trading off on interior finishes or something like that, or uh, are, are the customers more focused on just kind of the final monthly budget number? I think that the reality is, is everyone has a budget, um, and what we talk about with clients early on is as well as is some resemblance of a, a return on investment. So each property and what they're building, um, typically what we're building for context is um, an end user home. So they're, they're planning to live in this. It's often like a forever home or it's a long-term plan. So ROI can, can kind of fall to the wayside, but I think I feel really strongly that they need to know what they're like, like the worst case scenario, like, if they had to sell this home, what would it actually, what would be their return? And, and in a custom space, you can often go quite over that, quite a bit over that. And so we look in, in terms of that. And it's, it's also affordability is actually what the clients can afford. Most clients come to us with a pretty set budget and we've got to work within that. It's pretty rare that you have someone coming to you and say, just spend all my money. Yeah. Um, so we're typically working within a budget and going through, through the trade-offs. Um, and that's where you can start. I think one of the, my opinion at this point is custom is quite expensive. It's the first time it's been built. It's a new puzzle versus high performance per se. Um, so uh, we've got mathematical equations that can show that high performance, it, it definitely, there's no doubt that it costs more, um, but it, it is no different than a selection between a, uh, a high-end floor and a lower-end floor, higher-end cabinets versus lower-end. It's just a, it's just where do you want to put your dollars that makes the most sense. And each individual project and person, family uh, is unique. And they, we, what we try to do is listen to their values and what's important to them, and then apply the appropriate budget numbers to each to each area. And you mentioned um, obviously cost goes up the more custom or the more one-off something is. Do you have uh, with these designers that you work with on a regular basis certain assemblies that you reuse uh, time and again, or or even certain design languages that you reuse time and again to kind of try and make this process simpler and a little bit less expensive? In regards to the pre-assembly aspect, we've we've actually that's that's kind of leading into what the collective is all about. Um, so we've actually gone out and hired. Um, a full consultant team with designers, um, structural engineer, envelope engineer, all the aspects needed, interior designers as well, and built up pre-designed plans um, that have a repeatable process in mind. They're a, they're a set form that are sort of ready to build high-performance homes for the Vancouver market. Our initial offering, or what we've designed it for, is the 33 by 122 lot in Vancouver because um, it's, the, it's the most common lot that we see over here. Um, so we are uh, we're just sort of starting to to roll that out to more and more uh, to to a bigger audience, um, and I think what we're seeing from that is a desire for a sort of a, a home system, like you say, um, something that is a bit more common because there is a number of ways to reach high performance, and the idea of trying every new way is is expensive and costly. It's a learning curve on every project, so you're exactly right in what we're trying to do is make it repeatable. Uh, we're often going with these to a factory-built environment, prefabrication, and and systemization. So it's the same thing. It's, it's close to the same thing as we can over and over again. We also have a very keen focus on each, making each one of these houses unique. Um, so there's still a lot of selections and a number of ways you can make them unique. By no means are they cookie cutter. 
Um, so that's sort of what we've been up to uh, the last, I, I hate to say it, but three years. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, from my perspective, you know, we look at uh, any time in the past in, in Vancouver in particular, um, when the population has started to really try and grow and the uh, the need for housing has grown. And that seems to be what happened. You know, if you look back in the 70s, we had the Vancouver Special and they built like 12,000 of those or something like that. And they're, they're all very similar uh, in how they're put together, a little bit different here or there. So I, I'm, I was curious to hear your thought on that. And then kind of leading into the prefab side of things, how far do you think that's going to go in the industry? It, there seem to be some really big companies putting a lot of dollars into prefab. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on it as a, as a professional builder for many years now. Yeah, I think so. The, the this first order of that is 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 what we're kind of we jokingly call the the product that we've created the Vancouver Special 2.0, uh, but do it with a designer's eye and and the ability to make them all you look unique. So it, I, I agree with that that we're, we're growing within our numbers, um, and then and then prefab where this industry is going. I think prefab has been a bit of a unicorn in our industry for a while now. It's always been there and it's always been a, a theorized the, the way to go or the best way to do it. And it's never really happened. I think there's a, there's a big shift in the industry happening right now. And, and it's, it, it's, it's a paradigm shift. It's, there's a new set of rules coming out. There's a, there's this opportunity to, to innovate and change the way we do things. Um, the code is changing the, the building, everyone's getting more educated quickly. Um, you're seeing that um, definitely that my company and, and where we're in the peers that we're within, um, it's happening. It's happening very quickly. Um, but even even across the board, you're seeing a, in my opinion, reaction to the climate crisis, and so the awareness of that is happening quite quickly. Um, which which I believe is that opportunity for this, the, the, what I call the unicorn of prefab to actually come into play. Um, there is big dollars being thrown at it. I think in a, if you're looking at how our industry operates today in a custom home space specifically, I think that one is, um, is difficult. That unicorn is there, but it's, um, it hasn't had the, the shift or the, the market awareness to make the change. Um, you're going to see it, you're going to see it in multifamily low rise. Um, it makes a lot of sense there for the dollar values and what's happening. Prefab already exists uh, in the towers and how they just put wall assemblies together and pre-panelization. Um, my, my belief is prefab panels make a lot of sense. Modular makes sense on small buildings, um, kind of under 1500 square feet. Um, there's a, a, a public perception on modular that I think is going to be tough to overcome, especially when the dollar values you're talking about. Um, so I don't see modular making a big splash when it's an end user involved yet uh, in custom, but I think panelization, I mean, literally I feel like every couple of months there's a new panel company popping up um, and building it. I don't think, and I've got good friends in that world, so I'm going to be careful how I say this, but I don't think anyone's done it well yet on scale. Um, it's still it's still fairly small, and so you're not seeing the economies of scale come into play. What we'd love to do is put this put it on a bigger scale and get them get the volume up that makes sense, and that's where you need it to be repeatable. It needs to be uh, in a place that you can actually do it over and over again, and and make sense of it. If you're trying to do a custom house in 
reconfigure your system or your factory line every time, it'll never work. I think that's kind of the idea that uh, you know companies like Katera and those guys are are trying to do. They're they're kind of finding a convergence point. Um, I was at a talk last week with Tony Seba, and uh, he was talking about convergence points and technology is what really disrupts markets. And I think that we might be getting there in prefab construction, and that with computerized controls, uh, production lines the way that they can be now. But there is the public perception issue. Um, yeah. It's a really interesting point that you bring up with public perception because that leads to my next question. What are your feelings as a single family home builder on building single family homes in urban or particularly potentially, I should say, urban areas like Vancouver? Because I've had other guests on the show who are um, not big fans of that. They think, you know, density is the key to affordability, which it can be. But what are what are your thoughts on that? I think number one in that context is at this point in the city of Vancouver, a single family home has to be looked at as a luxury item. Um, the cost and what we're looking at it, what it is, it's, it's those houses are, um, are quite expensive. I'd love to see zero lot lines applied. Um, th- like these three foot fire access, even go zero lot line every second house. Uh, so you get row houses being built. Within affordability, I, I believe densification is the answer for affordability. And I think you have to look carefully at each neighborhood. So we do that with with our clients. And there's certain houses that just don't make sense. Your major artery tr- houses that are just ripe for redevelopment, those are already flagged and we typically don't, we, we don't want to see single family going, going up there. Um, where we're building single family homes for the most part are, are, are neighborhoods that have a number of houses being rebuilt already and they've already increased their asset value enough that densification just isn't going to be possible in the, in the near future. Um, and you're, you're not going to see that. So the, the big major arteries um, are being flagged for that. I'd like to see that individual homeowner or those single lots be able to densify. So let's push those hoses out of the ground is a massive one. That's going to make stuff more affordable and give us zero lot line. So they can, you, you, an individual can essentially develop their property and then it's tied in with a few others that come along. And that's been done in major cities all over the world. Um, I, I also like, I think there has to be a big push for that right now. Dense, like the low rise multifamily is in the hands of developers. Um, so they've got to assemble three or four lots and then increase the door numbers on it, which is a, is a very costly, um, endeavor and i don't know if that's going to if we're going to see all of a sudden that this price drop because of that so i think exploring other ways to to be able to build these buildings in those areas but um we're quite conscious of where we we put our single family houses and make sure that they are because we want to build houses that last for for hundreds of years so where they go i think it was chris higgins that had an interesting stat at one of the shows that the um so chris higgins from city of vancouver i was actually really surprised by the stat that of the, it was on nearly 44% of the the meters squared to be built that they projected from the city of Vancouver was single family houses. So we can't forget about that, just that sheer volume being created. Um, in the, I think it was like, it was just under 300, uh, 300,000 square meters to be built in the single family sector. So if we simply focus on multi, we're going to miss a big opportunity with all those houses being built. Um, so I, I, I do agree with densification for affordability, but in the right places, 
and making sure that we do, we still don't forget about that single family home. From your perspective, um, what are the kind of the hurdles that are still left? I know in the city of Vancouver, there's less of them um, than there certainly has been in the past. But what are some of the hurdles that are still left towards getting people into higher performance, uh, more comfortable homes? I think it's really down to public perception now. Um, so I think high performance is a terrible. It's the only term we got. And it's pretty funny if you go online and debate it. Like. Um, and see all the, the comments about it. High performance, typically in a car, you think of high performance and you think of cost. So it's this public perception that this is going to cost more. And I think we need to change that that tone and, and that it, it provides value. It provides values to families. It's It creates a more comfortable, healthier environment. Um, and it's more, it's like, it's the right thing to do. Uh, if we're going to declare a climate crisis or you believe in the climate crisis, this is a tangible decision that you can make with a major, arguably one of the most biggest spends of money that an individual have in their life um, to do the right thing. Like it, it actually has a really long lasting effect if we build these homes and significantly reduce one, the, the embodied carbon, the materials going into it. And number two, the operating energy. Both of those have a very lasting effect in the environment on, on that major decision that is being made. Well, Chris, I appreciate you being on the show. Appreciate your, your opinions on that, certainly. I'm going to put links in the show description to Be Collective and to Chris's social media. Let you guys reach out and chat with him. Thanks a lot, Chris, for being on the show. Hey. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for talking.